0: Arches and halos. Professional brow grooming. Be bold. Be you.
1: Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind, security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn
2: more at xfinity.com/slash xfi.
3: Hey, this is Bridget, and this is Emily, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now, today, we have to give a trigger warning because we're going to be discussing the absolutely intense case of Olympic gymnast doctor Larry Nasser. So if that's going to be something that's tough for you to listen to, just know that's what we're talking about today. Now, you probably have seen what happened with this case. It's one that I think really illustrates the magnitude to which someone can go on abusing women and girls for a very, very long time with. Very, very little consequence.
2: I mean, one of the biggest questions for this case, which we'll get into, is how many people seem to apparently have been complicit in allowing this to continue, which the question now is what level of complicity is criminal?
3: Exactly. A lot of people have been comparing it to the Penn State Jerry Sandusky situation, which interestingly enough, I saw a lot of journalists and folks on Twitter asking when this thing was just sort of bubbling up and people weren't really talking about it that much. The Penn State situation was such a huge story and scandal as it should have been. Right? Why did it take so long for this to gather steam? Why did this story, which had been out there for a while, why was it not a similar thing? It also just puts another thing on the list
2: of things that enrage me about how much higher education is failing women.
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When you think about the fact that very likely... You know, a college, Michigan State University, was letting these women and girls be abused without really doing a lot to stop it. When you think about that, it really, I mean, you send someone to a doctor to help them, to take care of them. And if they were knowingly putting these girls in harm's way, it's just, you really look at the university and you say, what are you doing? How did you
2: let this continue? So wait, let's take a step backwards. Let's review sort of baseline of the case. What happened? Why did this make the news so dramatically?
3: So basically, here's what went down. Nasser was the team doctor for USA Gymnastics and through four Olympic Games, he treated hopeful young gymnasts and gold medal winners alike. He treated people that you probably have heard of if you follow gymnastics at all. I'm talking folks like Gabby Douglas, Michaela Maroney, Allie Reisman. So he was really dealing with some of the biggest athletes in the world. He also worked for Michigan State University from 1997 to 2016 as an associate professor and served as the gymnastics and women's crew team physician. So... Basically, under the guise of medical treatments, he had been digitally penetrating women and girls under his care for quite some time. So they would go in for, you know, to get medical help and he would put his finger inside of them and tell them it was some sort of a special treatment to uh, to realign, you know, their body. Right. And part of what
2: made this so enraging is the fact that he was a very well-known and beloved doctor in the community, right? So what's scary about this is this is a person who used his power and... His sort of persuasive persona to befriend people, make people feel like they could trust him to use his position of power as a medical professional to completely violate the medical profession's
3: code of ethics of do no harm. Absolutely. There's this podcast that's very, very popular in the gymnastics community called Gymcastic. And he's actually in an episode of that podcast that I listened to in preparation for this episode. And you really see that he presented himself as The good guy, right? The community, he was beloved by this community. And in a sport that is so focused on women pushing themselves to their physical limits, he very likely gained their trust by presenting himself as someone who cared about their physicality, someone who talked about their mental health and emotional health. And listening to that podcast you know, it's it's so creepy after the fact, so I do not even recommend listening to it because it's so creepy, but you see the way that he used that to gain trust. You see the way that he used that to sort of gain that status that we give doctors in our communities.
2: Yes, and back in November, he pled guilty to 10 charges of molestation and in a separate case was found guilty of having more than 37,000 1,000 images and videos of child pornography found on his computer.
3: So this guy is a world-class f-ing creep. Yes. Honestly, is Absolutely. what it is. Absolutely. So these allegations weren't really taken seriously until August 29th, 2016, when former gymnast Rachel denholander became the first person to file a criminal complaint against him.
2: And what's so enraging is that it took until 2016 to bring this guy to court for these charges after he's been doing this since 1998, he admits. And there were so many opportunities to take action, and all of the governing organizations that he was involved with failed to do so despite concerns and complaints. So back in 1997 or mid-1998, a gymnast alleges that she complained to the MSU gymnastics coach, Kathy Clages, saying that she was concerned at the time about Nasser's treatments. Clay just discouraged her from filling a formal complaint and informed Nasser of the conversation, basically going straight to the guy who she's trying to report. And this person who's reporting is a teenager at the time who her then coach dissuades from reporting, right? So the power dynamic there is something to take into consideration. A teenage child says there's something wrong here. Her coach goes to the person she's reporting, tattles on her, which is a totally wrong thing to do, Talk about a violation of trust and then discourages her from making any
3: kind of formal complaint instead of.
2: Maybe listening.
3: You see that time and time again in this case for several years. In 1999 and again in 2000, an MSU softball player told three athletic trainers that he sexually inappropriately touched her during a medical treatment. She alleges that those trainers dismissed her concerns and one of them even said that she should feel grateful to be treated by such a world class doctor. An
2: Olympic doctor who quote knew what he was doing. Basically, don't question anyone. And you know what? I've been a part of sports leagues throughout my childhood and teenage years and college years. And that kind of blind obedience is drilled into players in a way that sets that kind of arena up for sexual predators to get away with this for years. And it's, it's totally wrong.
3: It's totally wrong. I really see so many intersections that allowed this to fester for so long. I think part of it is what you're talking about where they just drill in that these people know what they're doing. I think part of it is that the elevated place we give medical professionals. I also think it's part of it is not taking the complaints and the pain of women and girls seriously uh-huh. because these athletes did exactly what you're supposed to do in this situation. Yeah. They, you know, they, they did everything right. They did right. nothing wrong. And yet their concerns were dismissed again and again and again. And, and I-, I think you see that so often in situations like this.
2: Yeah. It's, it's just a total failure of chain of command, too. It reminds me of sexual assault in the military, in a way, where soldiers are expected to fall in line, and obedience is expected. And if you have a problem with a superior, the avenues for reporting those problems are extremely hard to come by. And there's a total failure when it comes to the chain of command for holding people in positions of power accountable.
3: Well, talk about a failure of a chain of command. In 2014, the Ingham County Prosecutor's Office actually investigated this doctor after there was a flurry of complaints, and they found that his treatments were, quote, medically sound. And it just enrages me that they supposedly looked into this, and they just found nothing wrong. The fact that this man was not even using a gloved finger to insert his finger inside of people without getting their consent, without another person in the room... Also, for
2: a f- injured hamstring. We're correct. Like, um, no. Like, no. You know what I mean? That's... There's no... It's not like her vagina was broken. Exactly, exactly.
3: Like You come in for, like, a headache, and he says, yeah. hmm, I need to do this. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Um, it also needs to be said that one of the people involved in that investigation, Stuart Dunnings, actually resigned himself in March 2016 for his own sexual misconduct allegations. Oh, my God. So it's, it really just creeps the whole way down, and it's really enraging.
2: And what's incredible is that rage was clearly put on display this past month, when beyond the actual criminal lawsuits and him being found guilty after pleading guilty to all of these uh, charges, this past month, we saw a flurry of viral attention brought to this case because of the sentencing, which is where this story really gets interesting. We'll be right back after this quick break to break it down. This episode is brought to you by China.
1: The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness.
0: Yes. And right now, that is more important than ever, especially when we're all apart. So recently, I had a group and we had a a socially distanced
2: And we're back. And I think we can all agree that this person, Larry Nasser, was troublingly allowed to continue molesting women and girls and abusing his power as a medical professional, and that's disgusting and abhorrent, and he should be punished for it. I think we can all agree on that, yeah? Hopefully there's not anybody out. I mean,
3: maybe other creeps disagree, (sighs) but hopefully most reasonable non-creeps agree. I
2: think we can all agree. What gets interesting, however, is how this sentencing went down.
3: Isn't that right, Bridget? That is an interesting development in this story. So this was a situation where many of us watched the sentencing happen live on television. And I definitely watched it with bated breath. And you really can't help but highlight how it was really a powerful, powerful thing to watch. You had these victims getting up and reading these impact statements about what happened to them.
2: And in fact, The Daily, the podcast by The New York Times, did a really good job of running through some of these powerful testimonies, which is what brought this case into the mainstream, by the way. It's not the 50-some-odd counts of child molestation that brought this case into everybody's collective consciousness. It was the fact that the judge presiding over the sentencing process, Judge Rosemary Aquilina, allowed victims... Open opportunities, open mic, basically. The opportunity to come make a statement that helps explain to the judge what kind of impact this person's crime has had on their lives. And The Daily did a really great rundown of what a relatively historically new phenomenon that is. And I want to first play a few of the impact statements, which have been so moving and so heartbreaking, but so important in the era of Me Too, of, of getting this point across of why this was so horrific. I was 11 years old when I first went to see Larry. I was seven years old. I was only 12.
0: I had been his patient since I was eight years old. The pain you have caused me mentally and emotionally is unexplainable. And I was taught that it is not okay for anyone to touch you
2: down there unless it's a doctor and you were an, a world-renowned doctor. I mean, the reality is that the reason this case is so newsworthy right now beyond the horrific nature of how long this total criminal creep was allowed to continue harming women and girls is the fact that this is an unprecedented amount of victim impact testimony that was not only delivered in the courtroom, but also publicized on television.
3: Yeah. I mean, you actually even saw his lawyer and Larry himself saying, it's not okay that I have to listen to this amount of victims' impact statements. This is too much.
2: It's psychologically damaging. Which, interestingly, that statement from Larry was read aloud in the courtroom by the presiding judge to the laughter of folks in the courtroom because, of course, his pain in this instance, his psychological torture pales in comparison to the damage he's done. But it was a very interesting public shaming of this person, which is understandable and rightful. But from a due process standpoint, it's it's an interesting development.
3: So here's his letter as read by the judge. The media
0: convinced them that everything I did was wrong and bad. They feel I broke their trust. Hell hath no fury
3: like a woman
0: scorned.
3: That is... Awful. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. By the way, that portion of the letter, people gasped when they heard that because it's such a. I mean, what is it's such an
2: ignorant demonstration that he has no concept of the damage he's actually done and somehow is still justifying his behavior like it's somehow the seven year old girl's fault like she's a woman scorned, and that justifies what he did
3: yeah calling I, I hadn't even i hadn't even zeroed in on that part of how horrible that is to say calling a seven year old a thirteen year old a fourteen year old that you abused a quote woman scorned that is really next level and it really demonstrates That he doesn't understand, that he could hear story after story after story of how damaging this was. Right. And still say, I don't think it was that bad. The media twisted it. Yeah.
2: And honestly, what's interesting is that poured gasoline on this fire, right? That enraged everyone even further, I think, which added to the long list of people who were ready and willing to give their testimony, give their impact statements. And accelerated the attention that this was getting. Everyone was cheering for this guy to go down in flames, understandably. What's interesting is that later on in sentencing, he did give another statement that accepted responsibility, and he had sort of come around, or at least maybe his attorney talked him into writing a better statement, because he really changed his tune. You know, he went from saying, this is psychologically torturous for me to listen to these victim impact statements to I understand your pain, I should pay for my crimes. I'm sorry for what I did. But only after, I think, the media attention became even more intense. And this judge was very interestingly emphatic in how she decided to preside over her courtroom, wasn't she?
3: She was. Judge Aquilina, she really had no regard for this man. You could tell that she found it as enraging as the rest of us watching at home, that she was as pissed as we felt in this situation. And right. she didn't she really didn't hold back to a point to which I almost don't think we see very often. I don't think we see judges Is that?
2: Yeah, I don't think we do, but then th- then that's what gives me pause. I think a lot of us wouldn't say this out loud because we want to see this guy go down in flames, myself included, but she's the judge, right? She's the judge who's determining sentencing. She's supposed to be, you know, what is that? That um that statue of Lady Justice, Lady justice who's Probably blind, her name. <laughs> weighing the scales of justice or whatever. And she's up there saying, you know, good for you, you sister survivors. This is a really important process in your healing process. She's sort of verbally coaching the women who came up to give victim impact statements, which is cool. Like, she's saying, this is part of your healing process. You're a survivor. You're not a victim. Take your power back. Own your voice. All of which I agree with. And then she's laughing as she reads this albeit ridiculous statement, from Larry Nassar. And you're just like, is that the person that's sentencing this person? Is she supposed to be that flagrantly on one side of this issue?
3: I can completely understand where you're coming from. I had some really conflicting feelings about this. On the one hand, I was like, rah-rah, you tell him, this is our moment, and then I remember a friend of mine said, you know, you're Little Miss Lefty. Look at you, like, championing the criminal justice system. Look at you watching this gleefully, waiting for this guy to go down. Shouldn't you be advocating for the criminal justice system to be more neutral? And I thought, yeah, but I don't. I'm not. Yeah. I, it was. It's hard, it's hard to reconcile. It right. really is hard to reconcile. I don't understand this queasy feeling that I get. You know, on the one hand... I, I'm gleefully watching this, and I was so rah-rah, and if you followed the stuff i will never told you Twitter, I was retweeting everything, like, yes, 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 yes. And then I took a step back and thought, wait, what am I actually celebrating here? Like, yeah. is it okay to watch this?
2: I don't know. I, I you just, know what? I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from, and I think the the feeling stems from how overdue this justice was, right? There were so many opportunities for this to be Solved for this justice to be delivered earlier, for hundreds of women and girls to be spared. And so this is long overdue, not to mention historically overdue, because so many child molesters and predators of sexual assault against women and girls, especially, but sexual assault in general, have gone unpunished. So it was this sort of cathartic collective moment. When our culture is saying, you know what, we're actually listening to women victims now. So let's come down on this guy as a symbol of the hashtag MeToo moment that we find ourselves in. But honestly, the whole concept of victim impact statements has never been used this way before. And for anybody who cares about equal justice under the law, this raises some concerning questions. One thing that's really important to keep in mind is that victims' role in sentencing has long been a debate in the legal community. These cases are typically the state versus or the people versus some predator in this regard. And so our country has been wrestling with the role that victims should play in seeking justice without necessarily creating an environment that seems prejudicial against more and higher and more severe sentencing. So back in 1987, the Supreme Court weighed in on how victims should be involved in the sentencing part of the due process that our our justice system carries out. So in this case, Booth versus Maryland... The victims were saying, we're left out of the process altogether. We want to be able to make victim impact statements at sentencing. And the case was specifically focused on sentencing that included the death penalty. And I want to throw it to the New York Times excellent podcast called The Daily from January 25th that features a really interesting interview with Emily Bazelon, who covers legal issues for the New York Times magazine. First, the Supreme Court said no. When a judge is deciding whether to sentence someone to death, they are not allowed to hear about the effect the murder has had on family members. It was overturned at some point, right? That's right.
3: We hold that the Eighth Amendment erects no automatic bar prohibiting a capital sentencing jury. From considering victim impact evidence relating to the victim's personal characteristics.
2: And in this later decision, what the court says is the hearing from victims helps educate the judge who's meeting out the sentence about what the harm of the crime has been.
3: The point that they're making is that they should not be able to hear from folks who were not there for the crime. That that has no relevance on guilt or innocent in the court of law.
2: And also they're unpacking our historical discomfort with the injection of raw emotion and impact directly from victims and survivors themselves.
3: Yeah, and that's the thing. Obviously, emotion is part of this. I mean, I almost don't even know where, where how I feel about this, feelings. But, <laughs> you know, obviously, this is an emotional crime. Right. And I don't think we can pretend that emotions have no place in a courtroom. Well,
2: it does depend on your philosophy around sentencing. Think about mandatory minimum sentences. That takes all the power out of the judge to be considerate of unique levels of impact that someone's crime has had on them. And the question is, where? what is the role of the judge in sentencing? Should it be, oh, you're guilty of 56 crimes? You're going to get X numbers of years because of that. Is it a simple equation? Or is it, let's listen to the robust emotional impact that 150 women plus come forward to discuss and share with the court? to then give the judge more of a sort of understanding of
3: how much damage this person has done. See, in this case, I actually think that's exactly what was happening. I think that the unprecedented amount of victims' impact statements that we heard in the courtroom in this case was to demonstrate just how many victims there were and just how long this abuse went on for and the magnitude and sheer scope of Nasser's crimes. Right. I think it was meant to paint that portrait so that anyone watching would have no misunderstanding about how serious what he did was and how long it spanned for and how many victims he created. And I get that.
2: I get it, too. But where's the tension, then? Because... We could think of a million other examples in which trial by public opinion would influence a judge, perhaps not rightfully so, right? If I, if, you know, if every sentencing was publicized live for all of the world to see, it would be a matter of who has the most compelling victim impact statements to bring someone down. You know, like, this can also be abused. And I I hate saying that. And I don't want to be the due process person here because I think this guy should burn in hell, quite frankly. And I think the victims who came forward did so bravely and courageously and powerfully. Um, but it was weird. It was weird to see a judge at sentencing saying things like, I wouldn't send my dogs to you, to Dr. Nasser. You know? It's just, it's uncomfortable. I don't know why... I don't know. I I wonder if I'm going to get I know I'm going to get so much for saying this, but where is the line with due process in in this case?
3: Yeah, Emily, I I'm so conflicted about this and I, I, I totally, totally hear you. One of my biggest pet peeves as someone who cares a lot about the criminal justice system and how that works is that when she was in courtroom, she said, Our constitution does not allow for cruel, unusual punishment. If it did, I have to say, I might allow what he did to all those beautiful souls, these young women in their childhood. I would allow someone or many people to do what he did to others. And that's really not okay with me. Right. Sexual assault in prison is not a joke. It is not some, I mean, we, it is a joke because, you know, we watch TV and movies and don't drop the soap is, you know, supposed to be a ha ha line. But our criminal justice system and our prison industry is really, really messed up. I don't think it's funny.
2: And honestly, Bridget, we're not alone in this. Diana Moskovitz at Deadspin wrote, even Larry Nassar does not deserve to be raped in prison. And it, it sort of underscores the conflicted feelings that a lot of us have watching this, thinking, yeah, he should definitely go to prison forever. Um but should we should we be relishing in the live sentencing process that's turning into a courtroom
3: performance? Yeah, I know the judge took a lot of flack for her, you know, style, flair in that courtroom, but I actually did love that To her critics, she basically was like, oh, you guys should watch me in court every day. I'm like this every day. Cameras are no cameras. This (laughs) is who I am. Right. So part of me was like, hey, get it girl. All right. At least she's being consistent. Yeah.
2: But it, it does, it, it does raise questions about due process. And, you know, what are the ramifications of having a courtroom conversation like that or having our criminal justice system pushed to the limit in this way? Like, we might see a backlash on victim impact statements. Or some other dramatic things might happen right before you record a podcast about this particular subject, which we'll talk about when we come back from this quick break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Arches and Halos Professional Brow Grooming. Be bold, be you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Quip. When's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new Smart Electric Toothbrush, good habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more.
0: The Quip Smart Brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth, so you can track when you're brushing, get tips, you can earn points, and you can redeem those points for rewards.
1: Start getting rewards for brushing
0: your teeth today and go to
1: getquip.com slash stuff mom right now to get your first refill free. That is your first refill free at getquip.com slash stuff mom spelled G E T Q U I P dot com slash stuff mom. Quip better oral health made simple and rewarding.
2: And we are back. And we're talking through the very dramatic sentencing and case regarding Larry Nassar and his disgusting long-term abuse of women and girls in gymnastics. And right before we started recording today's episode, we got some more news. We noticed that he was trending on Twitter again. So what happened, Bridget?
3: So basically, right as we sat down to record today's episode, we noticed he was trending and... The reason why he's trending is because he's back in court today, and the father of three of his victims basically physically tried to attack him in the courtroom. He lunged at him. He had to be held down. He asked the judge, as part of sentencing, if he could be granted a few minutes alone with Nasser in a locked room. And the judge was like, no, that's not how this works. But clearly, this is an emotional situation. And, you know, the fact that a father had to be restrained in a courtroom from physically attacking this monster. I mean, really, it's it's really something.
2: Well, I understand it, right? I feel like every parent out there is like, yeah.
3: You know who else understands it? That judge, because when asked if she was going to be holding this father in contempt of court, she said, absolutely not. I I get it. I understand it. That's interesting.
2: And yet, at the same time, this is exactly the kind of victim impact statement that the Supreme Court previously, back in 87, said was not allowed because the risk we run from having people give impact statements who weren't even directly impacted, who weren't even there, like family members, might create some kind of prejudicial situation that could increase the severity of sentencing. And when that is the norm, could that be a problem?
3: Oh, I I hate this because this is one of those times where my lefty pie-in-the-sky ideals are really challenged because, you know, I I found myself watching this, like, when I saw the video of this dad attacking Larry, I was like, good for him, right? When I saw the video of the judge bringing the smackdown on him, I thought, good for her. You tell him, sis, go get him. I'm not someone who is a huge champion of our criminal justice system, and it just makes me think, where does this feeling inside come from where I'm gleefully rooting for all of these machinations of our justice system to operate in a way that in other circumstances, I might not be so gleeful. Well,
2: that's the thing. I understand where our glee comes from in this very specific case, and in a lot of cases where justice is long overdue. The concern is... Legal precedent. Mm -hmm. I hate to be the spoiler of all things feminist. (laughs) I really am not trying to make that my niche on this podcast. Are you? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I swear. I mean, is this something that could be problematic for future cases that aren't this cut and dry, that don't have someone pleading guilty on all of these crimes and who's long overdue for a severe punishment? I mean, I don't know.
3: Yeah, I think I just have to accept that. I'm someone who advocates for due process and really, really wants our criminal justice system to be fair and unbiased. I just like it when sexual abusers get what's get what's coming. Yeah. I think I, I think it's just like I have to just accept that my primate brain or whatever, like it's just something that feels right. It's yeah. visceral. And yeah. I just have to accept that it's a tension and that I can't escape it. And I just I think like a lot of people watching. We're in this moment of Me Too, this reckoning, where it feels like for so long, we've been saying things. I mean, these women and girls have been speaking up for literal decades, since 1997, and nothing was done. And I just feel like I can't pretend, like, the weight of that, that it doesn't feel good to have some cathartic moment of, finally, he's getting his. And I have to just accept that. it. Yeah, I I have to accept it.
2: Well, you're relishing in that pent-up rage, which is totally the moment we have right now. And... I get it. I validate that. I recognize and respect that. And I also want to validate and recognize and respect for those who are looking at this saying, I too feel a little conflicted over it. It's okay to care about due process and want to see this guy go down and, and get his, you know, get what's coming to him.
3: I think you hit the nail on the head. You can hold separate opinions at once. You can say, he was a monster and deserves to die in prison. It's not okay for a judge to make jokes about him being raped in prison. Perhaps this unprecedented use of victims' impact statements, while powerful, and I applaud them, you know, wholeheartedly, perhaps it's fair to ask questions about what that means for our criminal justice system. I think all of those things can exist at once. Yeah. And they have to.
2: And I think it's an important discussion for us to be okay having. I do not want to be in a silo of feminist purity tests where the only right answer is blindly falling in line with supporting women without having the ability to question what kind of precedent this sets up. And it's not an easy position to take, but I wanna validate that position for a lot of us who are feeling a little conflicted over what's happening right now. Because you can believe in due process and believe that women have been long overdue in getting real justice.
3: So honestly, I wanna throw it to the listeners. I want to know what you think. I'm sure y'all will tell us all about it on Twitter. And I, I'm actually very curious because I don't think it's a black and white conversation. I do think there's room for tension and room for questions. Yeah. And I just want to hear what folks thought.
2: Yeah. So please get in touch with us at Mom Stuff Podcast on Twitter, Stuff Mom Never Told You on Instagram. And our inbox is always open at Mom Stuff at HowStuffWorks.com.
0: The Gold Club was the top strip club in Atlanta in the 1990s, with patrons like Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, Madonna, the King of Sweden. But in 2001, the club was put on trial with charges of prostitution, extortion, credit card fraud, racketeering, and an affiliation with the mob. I'm journalist Christina Lee, and I'll be taking you behind the scenes of the Gold Club scandal, from the booty and bubbly to the deceit and courtroom drama. Listen to Racket Inside the Gold Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dear Young
1: Rockers Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.